Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Spiritual Insights with Charlotte Spicer. Spirituality and Metaphysics Talk Radio, featuring a course in miracles, dream interpretation, guided meditation, and the psychic and metaphysics free-for-all. It's your opportunity to consult with a professional psychic medium, discuss past lives, the chakras, and more. We are non-denominational, and there are no limits. Want to change your life? You must first change your mind. 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 No matter your religious structure, cultivate peace in your reality through self-awareness with an authentic spiritual teacher. And now, your host, Charlotte Spicer. Welcome to Spiritual Insights, everyone. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to tune in today. Today, I am joined by Dr. Bob Robert Rosenthal, MD, from the Foundation for Inner Peace, as we explore concepts of A Course in Miracles. Let me back that up. We're taping privately so I can fix it. Welcome to Spiritual Insights, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us from around the United States. Welcome to Spiritual Insights, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us from the United States and around the world. Today we focus on A Course in Miracles in our virtual class format with Robert Rosenthal, MD. In these segments, Dr. Bob and I break down specific sections and offer our interpretations to help you gain a deeper understanding of the concepts of the course. If you're new to the show, Dr. Bob is the co-president of the Foundation for Inner Peace, the authorized publisher of A Course in Miracles, having served on the Foundation's board of directors since 1992. He was a practicing psychiatrist and psychotherapist for 32 years before retiring to take on this position. He was introduced to the course in 1975 at the age of 20 by Judy Scutch and became a close friend and protege of the course's co-scribe, Dr. Bill Stetford. Dr. Bob is the author of From Nevermind to Evermind, Transforming the Self to Embrace Miracles, the first of a five-book series on the principles of A Course in Miracles, as well as From Plagues to Miracles, The Transformational Journey of Exodus, from the slavery of ego to the promised land of spirit. Ooh, to connect. You can read excerpts and purchase from Nevermind to Evermind or from Plagues to Miracles at Dr. Bob's website, which is drbob-author.com, and that is d-r-b-o-b-author.com. To learn more about and purchase Course in Miracles, visit acim, as in miracles.org, and to review the archives of our virtual classes, visit spiritualinsightsradio.com. So today we are going to continue to explore Chapter 17, which focuses on forgiveness and the holy relationship. We are currently Section 4, The Two Pictures. So I am very excited to get started. So let's welcome Dr. Bob back to the show. How are you, Dr. Bob? Good to be together again. I'm really good, Char. Thank you. Um, it's been a... a a rough past month um, with just so much going on out here. But, you know, when you have a lot going on, it's a challenge uh, to recognize that it's just the ego kind of pulling you into its, its worldview and its nonsense. And, and in that sense, it's just another opportunity to practice peace and forgiveness. So that's what I've been up to is trying to remind myself to practice peace and forgiveness. 
Yeah, when it when it gets chaotic like that, it, it has to become like a moment to moment practice. I, I've been there. Totally understand. Yeah. I'll bet you have. I think I think we all have. <laughs> Absolutely. So we are picking up in section four, the two pictures with paragraph seven, which is a bit complicated. And uh, you said you wanted to give a little bit of uh, information about the census. Would you like to do that now? Um, I think I'd prefer to read it first and then, you know, sort of riff off of that, if that uh, sounds okay. That sounds great. And and, and I know previously we've recapped where we had been, but, you know, um, I think for this one, this, this section, the two pictures, this is sort of the transition point. And our last two shows have dealt with, you know, what led up to it. But the rest of this, this section pretty much, you know, works standing on its own. So I'm not feeling guided to do a big recap this week. I don't know. What about you? I feel the same way for some reason. It just seems unnecessary. And there's a lot to dig into here. So I'm pretty sure that the segue from the last segment to this one will be pretty clear. I, yeah, I agree. Uh, and if that's uh, what we're both getting, then that's what we're going to both go for. So um, mm-hmm. I think we should just jump right in. Okay. Let's jump so in should with, I start uh, then? Yeah, start with uh, paragraph seven. Here we go. Right. So this is from chapter 17 of the text of A Course in Miracles, titled uh, section four, titled The Two Pictures, paragraph seven. It is essential to realize that all defenses do what they would defend, <clears throat> The underlying basis for their effectiveness is that they offer what they defend. What they defend is placed in them for safekeeping, and as they operate, they bring it to you. Every defense operates by giving gifts, and the gift is always a miniature of the thought system the defense protects, set in a golden frame. The frame is very elaborate, all set with jewels and deeply carved and polished. Its purpose is to be of value in itself and to divert your attention from what it encloses. But the frame without the picture you cannot have. Defenses operate to make you think you can. So that is indeed a complicated and um, somewhat twisty um, paragraph. But as a psychiatrist, I am well-schooled in the idea of defenses, and I even discussed them with um, Bill Thetford, who was co-scribe of the course. So let me try to unpack this for, um, for our listeners. All defenses do what they would defend. I, I think that the best way to make sense of this is to realize that, <clears throat> excuse me, in order to defend against something, you have to first believe it exists, And second, believe that it's a threat, a real threat to you, both of which steps are contrary to the teachings of A Course in Miracles. Let me give a really, really easy example of of, of how this might work. Let's say um, someone tells you to think of a zebra. In order to deny that thought, in order to say, well, I'm not going to think about a zebra, you basically have to first think of the zebra, picture it in your mind or picture some facsimile of it, and then reject it. You know, 
and, and the moment you think of it, you've actually made real that which you're trying to defend against. The defense testifies to the power and the reality of what you're defending against, and you're defending against it because you're afraid of it. And if you are afraid of it, that means that you are approaching it from the perspective of being um, a limited a limited being living within a physical body um, who, uh, you know, who is vulnerable to attack, to illness, to death, primarily to death. And we'll see that that's, that's partly where this section is going. So what, what, what this paragraph is kicking off is an extended metaphor about the relationship picture frame and its picture and looking at that with two different pictures. One, the picture the ego presents to us, which, as we'll see, has this absolutely amazing frame, the defense, in order to distract us from what the picture actually shows. And the other, the picture that the Holy Spirit holds out to us, which is really the exact opposite in every way. Um, if we use that, that metaphor of the picture to understand defenses, then it's kind of like the frame is shouting out at us and waving and using a megaphone to say, look at me, look at me, look at me, look over here. Don't pay attention to what you're really afraid of. You know, it, it would almost be like, you know, you've got a, a, a truck bearing down on you and someone saying, don't worry about that truck. Don't worry about that truck. Look at, look at the beautiful sky. Um, pay attention to this, this potential partner you have. Think about winning the lottery. You know, the ego tries to distract us from, from the fundamental plight of the ego, which is one of suffering and limits and shame and guilt um, and aloneness perhaps as much as anything else. It tries to distract us from that by having us look at all this, you know, garish, glaring stuff and all the drama that keeps our minds busy day to day. But what this paragraph is saying is that defense doesn't protect you. In fact, the defense preserves in your mind your belief that all of these things are real and that they are indeed dangerous. Um, Bill Thetford once asked me to think about the proposition. He said, you know, what if, what would it be like to live in this world with absolutely no defenses? Now, from a psychological standpoint, any Freudian or any, um, you know, psychotherapist trained in, in, in a system of depth psychology would tell you that's not possible because we evolved defenses from, you know, from childhood on, in a sense, everything that, that hurts us creates a defense of some kind you know we're going to avoid that thing in the future uh we we you know we don't want to look at it um but take that hypothetical what would it be like to live in a world without any defenses it would mean that you're seeing everything honestly everything truthfully and you're not introducing any distortions of your own uh it would mean you're not making judgments about anything because every judgment is rooted in the past and the past is your personal past. It already implies a defensive maneuver. You know, you're selecting out aspects of your past to focus on and others not to. I'm sure, and I talked about this in the last section of, uh, of, of this chapter when we talked about 
Shadows of the Past, Section 3, uh, in, this, in this chapter of the text. So, you know, we use defenses, but they preserve what we're trying to defend against. And, and in this chapter, I mean, in this paragraph that I just read, um, it, it says, you know, every defense operates by giving gifts. And the gift is always a miniature of the thought system the defense protects, set in a golden frame. So in that line, what the Course is telling us is it's not even just a defense against a specific thing that has happened to you or a specific person that you felt hurt you. Ultimately, it's a defense that blinds you to the entire egoic thought system, and yet in doing that, it preserves it, it reinforces it, it maintains our sense that it is dangerous and a threat, and at the deepest level, it preserves a sense of, yeah, you know, the ego is real and I'm a body and, uh, oh boy, that's, you know, that's scary. And, you know, let's try not to think about that. Let's party and have fun until, you know, midnight strikes and we're all dead. Um, so the rest of this section, as you'll see, is, is, is this elaborate metaphor about the relationship between the frame and the picture and the two offerings that will ultimately help us make the decision which picture do we really want to look at if we're no longer distracted by the frame okay over to you Shar. okay wow I, I do have some thoughts and um, I sat with it to break it down because of the way it's worded I wanted to put it in such a way that is digestible uh, for the listeners and for me this is a tough paragraph so my idea is this. The idea that defenses do what they defend, and this is going to be largely in line with everything you just said, but uh, here's what I have. The idea that defenses do what they defend means that their purpose is to defend and defense is necessary to protect what is being threatened. It is simple in its construction, but its display becomes distorted because of the illusory nature of defense and the ego's erratic way of defending its core fear. The underlying basis for their effectiveness is that they offer what they defend. Okay. All right. So the underlying basis is self-preservation of the ego. It is effective in defending and protecting its power because it offers fear as its justification. The fear is to be protected by extended, extending itself outward and muddying the picture to obscure the reality. And the fear, irrational and false, is insane. People are encouraged to face their fears, quote-unquote. This seems to have the courage to see it for what it is, but most defend their fears as real. Going on to the next sentence, what they defend is placed in them for safekeeping, and as they operate, they bring it to you. Okay, and with regard to the miniatures, obviously the miniatures are a smaller version of the larger fear, fear of death, but there's, um, there's more to it, I think. I think it's multifaceted so that the ego cannot discern it easily. There's fear of death and fear of life. There's fear of darkness and fear of light. Fear of truth and fear of betrayal. It all plays out at the same mm. time, but the ego disguises it to seem as though it plays out in an easy flow. It's all interconnected, however. The, cra the characteristics of the senses are comprised of the fears that are being protected and kept safe. The way the ego justifies each defense of itself is the insanity. It does it in a way that it... It works very hard to defend all the smaller individuated pieces of that larger fear construct. 
This way it is kept busy, occupied, and distracted from the truth that life and death in and of themselves are, in fact, neutral. It is the reaction to both that sets the ego into motion. Okay? So the larger fears play out in smaller demonstrations, and then they're defended by extending fear outward. Um, I think that's the only way the ego knows how to do it. It doesn't know any better. Um, So it pushes out what it is, becomes afraid of it, like you said, and protects itself against something it doesn't understand, but wholly believes is real. So as we look at the frame, yeah, so that's, that's what we value in itself, and that's where all the distraction comes in. But you can't have one and not the other, and I think that's what we continually try to do is keep what we value and deny what's in the picture. And that's what I have for that paragraph. Yeah, no, I think that was great. That was great. Um, you, you know, you you emphasized something that I had skipped over, um, which is the idea of the that the miniature. Remember, the ego being itself split off uh, from God, um, and being a fragment. All it knows how to do is separate and fragment. So it likes taking the wholeness and breaking it down into these little pieces and these little problems, and then fragmenting it further by defending against them. Um, So that was a really good point because reality uh, with a capital R is holographic and, you know, you can't deal with the fragments separately and independently. You know, I think one of the things that I've certainly noticed as I've, you know, lived my life and gotten older is I used to think, you know, one of these days my to-do list will be completely checked off. I'll get it all done um, and, you know, it'll be peaceful. And, 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 you know, just the opposite has happened. I mean, it seems like there's more and more and more because the longer you live, the more the ego fragments things off, the more people you know, the more things there are to attend to. And you can't solve fragmentation through further fragmentation. You can't see the whole picture um, if, in the frame if, 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 if each defense in that frame is, is sort of a miniaturization of the whole picture that keeps you from recognizing what it is. Um, so I, I thank you for emphasizing that. Sure. Sure. Okay. Want to move on to paragraph eight? Yes, please. Okay. The special relationship has the most imposing and deceptive frame of all the defenses the ego uses. Its thought system is offered here, surrounded by a frame so heavy and so elaborate that the picture is almost obliterated by its imposing structure. Into the frame are woven all sorts of fanciful and fragmented illusions of love set with dreams of sacrifice and self-aggrandizement and interlaced with gilded threads of self-destruction. The glitter of blood shines like rubies, and the tears are faceted like diamonds and gleam in the dim light in which the offering is made. Now, what jumps out at me here is the use of the words dim light, the gleam in the dim light in which the offering is made. So that tells me if the light is dim, it's you're mostly operating in darkness with very little to see by. That, to me, speaks to the unconscious. And so this is this thought system that is constantly operating beneath the surface, and it takes a concerted effort to start to become aware of how it works and when it's for you or against you. 
And so going back to the top of the paragraph, this being the most imposing and deceptive frame of all the defenses the ego uses, talking about the special relationship. And I think that is because it's the special relationship that lures the ego the most. There are other situations that we can become attracted to, um, such as career or what have you. But nothing is as captivating as the promise that the special relationship seems to offer. Taking us back to um, a line from the course that we've used so many times, but it's, it's probably my favorite line in the whole book. The ego will forever have you chasing what it does not want you to find. So that special relationship is that captivating that we're looking for. And so the ego has you running in circles trying to find it and then superimposing all of these defenses onto it. As we move on, okay, now its thought system is offered here, surrounded by a frame so heavy and so elaborate that the picture is almost obliterated. And so here are all of our hopes, fanciful and fragmented illusions of love that were dreams of sacrifice and self-aggrandizement. So what this does for me is it kind of glorifies and romanticizes self-destruction. <laughs> yeah. And it kind of makes sense if, if maybe some people do it more than others. But if you've ever, if you look back in your past and if you've ever really gone for a, a certain relationship, if you search your mind, I wonder if you would find these fantasies of romance novel scenarios. I'll use that phrase where there's this conflict that arises, turbulence that follows, and then results in this glorious making up and realizing something that's so much bigger than yourself, like you are the one, you know, something romanticized like, like that. That's what this brings out for me. And in a special relationship, I think over time, as the things that we deny or shy away from or don't want to look at, they have to come to the light at some point. There has to be growth here. So those truths start to arise, and that's when we start to get, to get scared. That's when the ego starts to sense that threat. And then it sends out all its little fragments, splits them up, spreads them out, and then has you looking in all the different areas where you can't find the truth. And doing this whole uh, operation of defense, and this is, it just brings more conflict. But eventually, when you dry your tears and you really take a look at it, if you look at it honestly and in the light, with the light of God, that's when you start to realize they weren't, tear, they weren't rubies or diamonds, blood and tears. And it was that fatalistic thing that we hold in our mind like a, a doom and gloom aspect of the ego that love isn't real and then we put ourselves in these scenarios where we wind up alone in that conflict of is love real or is love false if we flip that around we can find the truth that love is real it's just that the ego skews it to such an enormous degree that we lose our way. And so this paragraph for me 
really brings out the the construct of the frame, what it is and what it isn't. Over to you, Bob. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Char. Um, yeah, so it starts right off telling us that the special relationship has the most imposing and deceptive frame of all the defenses the ego uses. Implied in that sentence is the special relationship is a defense. Um, and this kind of harkens back to the first line of paragraph four of this section, which says, in a sense, the special relationship was the ego's answer to the creation of the Holy Spirit, who was God's answer to the separation. So, you know, special relationship is the ego saying, uh, don't worry about that universal love. Uh, it's, it's really not worthwhile trying to see the holiness and the spirit in every one of your brothers and sisters who are exactly the same as you in God's eyes. Find someone special. Um, and, and in fact, I mean, this section does focus on the special love relationship. But every seeming relationship that the ego has is a special relationship. You know, we only conceptualize our relationships in terms of, oh, you know, how do I relate to this one? What do I have to do to get something? I mean, the relationships the ego has are pretty transactional. You know, they're, they're rarely based in, in, in pure love. I, I think that maybe uh, we do get close to that in some relationships, you know, if you um, have a very wanted, um, you know, infant child who can give you absolutely nothing. They can't even smile yet, and yet you just feel this outpouring of love for them. Yeah, that's pretty good, but there's still a body there, and, you, you know, I don't know anyone with a newborn baby who doesn't worry about that baby. You know, there's lots of love, but there's also worry, and such is the ego's world. So this, this paragraph is telling us that the special relationship is a defense. And going to those final lines, you know, the glitter, of, <clears throat> the glitter of blood shines like rubies and the tears are faceted like diamonds. I mean, the language, is it, the, language the Course is using is itself a mirror of, of the egoic frame. You know, it's this <clears throat> fancy, convoluted, um, you know, you can sort of, picture this gilded gold frame set with all this this stuff and basically what it's saying is the special relationship is a frame that distracts you it's a defense that diverts you from seeing what's really within it and the rest of this section is is going to tell us you know what's in it so this is the setup that says yeah that might look like rubies and diamonds but it's blood and tears. I mean, we've talked about, Sean and I have talked about this a lot before, but, you know, the special relationship, um, and in some of the earlier sections, especially in chapter 16, it basically says it exists in fantasy. The moment the two people come together, um, it already starts to peel away from what the fantasy is. You know, the ideal special relationship is one that lives in your own mind where the partner can't come in at all to screw up your fantasy of who you need them to be. This is why all the love stories and all the best Hollywood movies of, of romance end when the lovers finally get together, because God forbid they show you what their life is like waking up every day and one, you know, left the cap off the toothpaste and, 
the other forgot to flush the toilet and the dishes are in the sink and their money problems. And, you know, we don't want to see any of that stuff. We want the happily ever after walking into the sunset moment, but that doesn't exist. You know, let me say it again. That doesn't exist. That's part of the frame. That's part of the ego's fantasy of a special relationship. So this paragraph is setting us up for, um, don't buy into this illusion, folks, because it can only disappoint you. And even if, let's say, best case scenario, you know, you fell in love with your high school sweetheart, you're perfect for each other, you're soulmates, you get together, um, you live your whole life, at some point, you're going to lose them, or they're going to lose you. Or if you can arrange it that you both manage to die simultaneously in some kind of a car accident, well, you know, great. You've left your kids and other people devastated. <clears throat> the ego's world is one that is fraught with loss and it's fraught with death. Um, everything that lives in this physical universe, this physical world, must die because it's not the world that God created as one and as loving. So that's what this paragraph is about. And um and I think the next, you know, the next couple of paragraphs take us to where, you know, to the meat of the section. Yes, it Any does. other thoughts before I jump into that? Yeah, just to say that um you know, in those relationships, you know, we have the fantasy and then the truth emerges. Um and those the truths about those the the other, I think the ego takes and twists it into lies defend, you know, does that whole cycle of throwing out the fear, defending it with fear, and then accusing the other of betrayal. Yeah. It's unavoidable. It's unavoidable in a special relationship that you you will not feel like a victim because the other person didn't hold up the end of their their bargain in your fantasy. So. Yes. Yeah. Alrighty. All right. Paragraph nine. Here we go. Look at the picture. And picture is in italics. It's emphasized. Look at the picture. Do not let the frame distract you. This gift is given you for your damnation. And if you take it, you will believe that you are damned. You cannot have the frame without the picture. What you value is the frame, for there you see no conflict. Yet the frame is only the wrapping for the gift of conflict. The frame is not the gift. Be not deceived by the most superficial aspects of this thought system, for these aspects enclose the whole, complete in every aspect. Death lies in this glittering gift. Let not your gaze dwell on the hypnotic gleaming of the frame. Look at the picture and realize that death is offered you. So (laughs) this is, you know, Jesus and the course giving it to us right between the proverbial eyes, which of course is where our third eye exists and allows us to see truthfully um, and not in the dim light uh, that, you know, manages to filter into the ego's world. And, you know, it's very simple. Look at the picture. Look at the picture. Look at the picture. And what is the picture? No matter how great the relationship is, you know, you're going to die. The other person's going to die. They're going to disappoint you. Everything that we were just talking about, we don't need to reiterate it because, you know, it's not sounding doom and gloom. 
it's only doom and gloom if you believe that that's all there is. But the, the next paragraphs are going to show us, no, we actually have a real alternative. It's not like, here's this one picture, and either you're staring at the picture, which is, you know, a skull and crossbones and death, or, no, let's look at the frame, because the frame is much prettier and much more, you know, elaborate. It's saying, no, the frame disguises the picture. You can't have one without the other. And if you buy the frame, you also get the picture. But if you see the picture for what it is, then you can, as the Course tells us in its final section, then you can choose once again. You have a real choice. But as long as you're staring at that frame and cherishing it and believing that, that those are rubies and diamonds, you're not even going to notice the other picture. You won't believe there's an alternative. Uh, and so, you know, as, as you said, Shar, we continue to, 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 you know, follow the ego's dictum. We, we seek and seek and seek, but we never mm-hmm. find. Yep. And, you know, either we think it's just over the next hillside, you know, the bear went over the mountain, and what did he find? He found another mountain. Um, mm-hmm. Or we get it. Oh, my God, we got it. Isn't it great? Oh, is that all there is? Uh, you know, this isn't really working for me anymore. I, I'd better go looking for something better, you know, the better job, the better partner, the better, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whatever it is. Dissatisfaction, so yeah. <clears throat> yes, exactly. You know, or to quote the Rolling Stones, I can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but let's look at the picture. The picture tells you, yeah, you're right. You won't get satisfaction here. Um, I mean, I think it's it's really very powerful, you know. Um, uh-huh. Don't be distracted by the superficial aspects of this thought system, for these aspects enclose the whole, complete in every aspect. Death lies in this glittering gift. Um, you know, you couldn't say it more more clearly. This was also the um, recognition that the Buddha had when he was uh, Siddhartha Gautama and living in the palace and, you know, thinking everything was beautiful and he had a beautiful wife and amazing parents who were the king and queen and every single thing he could possibly have wanted was there for him. But somehow he knew that, that it, was, it was an illusion. And when he went outside the palace gates, what did he see? He saw um, sickness, a sick person and an aging person. And last of all, he saw a corpse. You know, that can't be disguised by living within the safe palace walls, which, which is, after all, just another way of, uh, of talking about a frame. Um, mm-hmm. And on seeing mm-hmm. those, Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, realizes, wow, I'm not going to be seduced by this. And he leaves it all. In a way, it seems horrible. Oh, my God, he left his loving parents and his beloved wife. But he le- it's, it's metaphoric. He has to leave it all if he wants to find the truth. And if he doesn't find the truth, then he knows that death wins. And this is true in each of our lives. And the beauty mm-hmm. is we don't have to leave our parents or our children or go off in the desert and become an ascetic and beat ourselves with horse hair or whatever it is. We just need to choose this other way. And then every one of our relationships will transform to the extent that we allow it from a special relationship where we're getting something and we're going to make a sacrifice to get that to a holy Mm. relationship where we're neither getting or giving because we are in fact both. We're we're not getting anything concrete or giving it. 
We're not asked to make a sacrifice, giving and getting love. And, and that, we're doing it because it's who we are. It's just the most natural thing in the world. In fact, it's the only natural thing in the world because it's the natural expression of our true reality. I am love. Mm. You are love. I am the child of God. You are the child of God. So this paragraph is saying, you know, don't be tricked, guys. You know, death lies in this glittering gift. Look at the picture, look at the picture, look at the picture, and realize that death is offered you. All right, over to you. <laughs> okay. You know, what was interesting to me in reading this paragraph is the use of the word gift. I found that rather intriguing. And I'm, I'm absolutely certain it was used intentionally, okay? So when I think about the gift, and then it's like, well, why would they call it a gift? Okay, then Jesus goes on to say in sentence six, yet the frame is only the wrapping for the gift of conflict. Okay, so the gift then is the conflict that keeps you captive. All right, so my take on it is the ego being in stain extends itself outward, but because it is comprised of core fears, all it can offer is comp and adds richness to them by disguising them as jewels and elaborate carving and textures with the richness. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me start over. <laughs> the ego, being insane, extends itself outward, outward, but because it is comprised of core fears, all it can offer is conflict. It takes these conflicts and adds richness to them by disguising them as jewels and elaborate carving and texture with the experience it thinks it wants to have. When the picture is seen a little more clearly, after the truth starts to come out, that there is dysfunction in the alliance that was based on misperception, then the conflicts begin to shift. They seem larger and insurmountable, and the conclusion is drawn that there is no love present in the relationship. But I don't believe that to be true. I think love is present in any relationship. Otherwise, why would you be in it? It doesn't have to be romantic love. You know, and the other intriguing part for me is the damnation part. This gift is given you for your damnation. That's a little heavy. Yeah, it is. Um, but it goes right back to, and you reiterated it, the ego keeping you from truly attaining what it is you want from your soul, which is true love. There's The conflict then is the soul's urging for the true love, and then the ego twisting it around and steering you towards what it's not in its own defense. That's what I get from that. It's beautiful. And, and once again, this is what I love about us doing this, you know, as a pair, as in a relationship, is I'll focus on one thing, and then you'll come in, and I'll realize, oh, yeah, I didn't touch on that. And it's just great. <laughs> So, yeah, you brought up the, the idea of the conflict, that conflict is the gift. Um, yeah. Think of it this way. Can there be conflict when all is one? I mean, conflict requires a sense of separation, a sense of differences, different agendas, different life history. Um, in a different place in the text, it tells us that conflict is the root of all evil. So, so this is the ego's gift. You know, it, 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 it's conflict. And, um, and, and again, when seen truly, well, who, who in their right mind would want that? Problem is, of course, we're not in our right mind. You know, we're insane. But we have 
the best therapist possible on the Holy Spirit who will lead us from our insanity into our right mind where we can look at the picture and go, thank you very much, ego, <clears throat> not for me, don't want that. Um, I have another choice. And, and I also loved what you said about, you know, yes, in every relationship, there is the spark of love. There's a spark of holiness. There has to be because it's who we mm-hmm. are. Um, in chapters four and five of uh, my book, From Nevermind to Evermind, I talk about how we all want to be connected. We all want to join. But every attempt to join within this world winds up kind of um, running aground because it's not joining based on our true self as spirit. Once we join as spirit, now we have a completely different experience, that holy relationship um, and the miracles that flow from it. So Mm -hmm. thank you. And um, yeah, shall I go on? Um. Well, I wanted—I just wanted to add that, you know, mm-hmm. this this whole conflict is at the core of this for the ego. So we come to this life and we attach ourselves to these bodies and to our goals and our hopes and our fears, you know, and then the ego starts telling you that death is bad. Um, and so the whole pursuit of spirituality and, and information like this is to recognize your own eternal soul, that it is one with all the other people, and then um, then death isn't the horrible thing that we that the ego makes it out to be. And it was interesting how you said, you know, unless, you know, you can arrange a car accident where you both leave at the same time. Uh-huh. You know, and, and that but that's some that's something that people think about, I think, whether they say it out loud or not. Um, so it's that perception of death as final and not fully embracing the concept that, you know, life is eternal. These are brief stops in that path, these lifetimes. Life is actually eternal. It goes on forever. These are just little pieces of a film strip. But, you know, we're here to learn. And so these are the things we need to learn. Um, so that, that's all. That's all I wanted to say. Do you want that's me to good. start with? I mean, paragraph Joel, 10? Gold, oh. Joel Goldsmith yeah, called them. Uh, titled his book uh, "A Parenthesis in Eternity." You know, um, yeah. You know, life is oh. eternal and life is one. Uh, you know, we we live in these little delusional bubbles, and that's what the course is trying to help us move out of. And that doesn't mean you're going to oh. Enlightenment is not death. That's so important to say. Enlightenment is, is, is awakening. It's remembering what your true self is. And as you go through the bubble, the dream, uh, the parenthesis in eternity, with the absolute conviction of what you really are, the whole dream changes. It becomes what the Course calls the happy dream. And you know, and that's what we want to do because for each one of us who can get to that place or even get close to it or even just begin moving in that direction, um, mind is one, minds are joined, and we make it all the more likely that that our brothers and sisters, uh, you know, join us on that journey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it uses yeah. time against you. 
to, to accomplish yeah. this goal. Because as, as far as we're all concerned, you know, we are in a body which is in time, therefore subject to change, which means it, it, it can be created, it can be born, it will grow up, and then eventually it will die. This is just the truth of it. But then the ego uses time against you and keeps that idea that the clock is ticking. You're running out of time to keep that fear stoked. And so it uses that fear and applies it to other things, but it keeps that core fear right there at the forefront and then trips you up by creating those dissatisfying um, conflicts. Anyway, shall we go to paragraph 10? Yeah, and I've got like multiple lines and, you know, uh, underscores on this one, so I suspect it's a good one. Please go ahead. (laughs) It is. Okay. That is why the holy instant is so important in the defense of truth. The truth itself needs no defense, but you do need defense against your acceptance of the gift of death. When you, who are truth, accept an idea so dangerous to truth, you threaten truth with destruction. And your defense must now be undertaken to keep truth whole. The power of heaven, the love of God, the tears of Christ, and the joy of his eternal spirit are marshaled to defend you from your own attack. For you attack them, being part of them, and they must save you, for they love themselves. Wow. Okay. Right back to the holy instant. Here's your escape hatch. Here's your opportunity to break out of this holding pattern of the, the fear of death and the grip of the ego. The holy, the holy instant is the, if you invite it in, allows you to get a glimpse of the truth. And that doesn't need any defense. It is what it is. And, and it can't even be questioned, really. And so it takes you back to this conflict of life and death. Um, when you who are truth accept an idea so dangerous, you threaten truth with destruction. And so that's the, the ego's stronghold. It's about your own destruction, your own death. And so it don't put you into defense mode, fight or flight. How do you outrun death or how do you triumph over it? You cannot. It's futile, Okay. So the power of heaven, the love of God, the tears of Christ, and his eternal spirit come together to try to help you stop attacking yourself. The ego uses all of this against you. It pulls you out of peace. It makes you unhappy. It makes you want more than what you have. It makes you dissatisfied with what you've experienced and um, want different experiences that will prove to you that you're someone else, you know, basically. And so when we do this, if we accept that idea, it's so dangerous to truth, we're basically attacking, it's saying, all of these things that are mentioned, heaven, God, Christ, his eternal spirit, the Holy Spirit. We're part of them. And so in attacking that truth, we're attacking them, and that's where they have to come in. Because they love themselves and because they are truth and try to bring you out of that. And so some situations are very uncomfortable, but that's where we are motivated to grow. And that's, that is their opportunity to step in and use the holy instant 
to give us a glimmer of truth so that we might achieve a little more enlightenment and take a step further towards that truth and away from the illusion that we are just this one small thing subject to being crushed like a bug and so powerless and limited. That's what I get from this. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, So I've said it before, but A Course in Miracles is always speaking to us at two different levels um, because we believe in levels in this world of form and we believe that we're, you know, here in bodies and uh, that we're not really the oneness that, that God created us as. Um, and, and so it's always addressing us at both levels uh, and it'll switch back and forth. And this is partly why the course can be so confusing. So this paragraph is kind of, it, it's jumping to um, the, the, the level of, of the oneness in a sense and yet accommodating the level of two-ness, the level of separation, because that's where we are. And what it's really saying is truth needs no defense. You know, truth is truth. You can't attack it because it's true. You can't make truth untrue. You can't add anything untrue to the truth. Um, It needs no defense. But we need defense because we've accepted something that isn't true. We've accepted this gift of death from the ego. So it says, when you who are truth accept an idea so dangerous to truth, you threaten truth with destruction. Now, this is really key. Truth can't be destroyed. It needs no defense. It's only threatened with destruction in the mind that believes that there's anything other than truth that could exist. Um, So it's not that that we're really ever in danger of destroying our truth. Um, that's why, you know, um, the, the line that the, the course, le- the only course lesson that's repeated, you know, six times is I am as God created me. You can't change the nature of your creation, but you can believe that you've changed it. You know, um, you can be psychotic and crawl on the ground and pretend that you're a snake. doesn't make you a snake, but you could become pretty convinced of that. Um, so it says, and now your def- and, and your defense must now be undertaken to keep truth whole. Um, the power of heaven, the love of God, the tears of Christ, the joy of his eternal spirit. In other words, once the mind splits, the part of the mind, and this is where it gets tricky to understand, in level one, the mind didn't really split. So the part of the mind that's still up there at the level of oneness is going, oh, you know, we have to do something about this, this seeming split that was healed the instant that it seemed to happen. And the Holy Spirit and the atonement are the way that that is healed. And it happened immediately. But, you know, what I love about this paragraph is, you know, for you attack them being part of them and they must save you for they love themselves. We're talking in the language of level two here, you know, as if they are different from us. You know, you attack them, but you're part of them, and they must save you, which sounds like they're not you, for they love themselves. They love themselves, and they love in, in that self-love is, is us. So it's kind of um, – it's tr- very tricky in its own right. <clears throat> it's not saying that God in heaven saw what Adam and Eve did and sent Christ down to redeem them. 
it's basically saying that the thought system that is one always was one eternally will be one because was and will be those verb tenses don't even exist in oneness that it, it sort of is like it's a, it's a self-sealing thing uh and when when it seemed to split into a dream, it automatically heals itself because it can't possibly go in the direction that we want to take it in. Um, and, and, and that's, I think it frames it this way because as it says in line four, and your defense must now be undertaken. So it's turning that idea of defense around and saying, oh, instead of the gift of what the ego is giving you, this defense of this frame, no, here's the different meaning of defense. It's kind of like in, uh, I think it's chapter 14, where the Course talks about what you need to do is to decide against deciding. You know, in the recognition, you can't make a decision here. You have to make the one decision, which is to decide that you can't decide, and therefore you're not going to decide. This is the only defense. You know, it's sort of the defense against all of your defenses, by saying, you don't need your defenses. You never did anything wrong. You never left the oneness of God. But because you think you did, now all of these forces have to you know, rush in seemingly from the perspective of the split-off part of the mind. So they seemingly rush in to defend us and protect us from what we believe we did to ourselves. Um, it, it's, it's a brilliant paragraph. Um, and the holy instant... I almost forgot about the opening line. The holy instant Mm -hmm. is the gift. The holy instant is the quote-unquote defense against all the defenses that we made, because as we'll see in the next couple paragraphs, the holy spirit, I mean, sorry, the holy instant, as you said, Char, it is that portal home, you know? Yes. It's 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 the felt experienced reminder that, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, body isn't your home, world isn't your home, special relationships aren't your home, your home is love, your home is oneness, your home is is seeing in your brother and sister the exact same thing that you see in yourself, and in fact, you won't see it in yourself until you recognize it in them first. Oh yeah, that's what I want, that's that's what works. And the holy instant is the portal there. Okay, Mm. back to you. (laughs) I just want to add one thing, because, you know, we do multiple segments on the show, and there have been other uh, topics explored, but I just recognized in this paragraph uh, a crossover between that subject and this. And what was said, and I'm taking this to sentence two in this paragraph, the truth itself needs no defense, but you do need defense against your acceptance of the gift of death. So what what was being said was that in linear time right now, what we're what we're in the middle of, we're taping this in 2019. We're coming into the year 2020, which marks another decade. And so in that linear construct of time, there's going to be a shift. And so what we were talking about is that we need to speak our truths. And so in talking about speaking your truth, whether it's in a job interview or in a relationship, you have to be who you are. What we defend is what we're not. That's the the funny part about it. You don't have to defend what's true about you. You have to defend the mask that you constructed to protect yourself from people either knowing or touching your fears, right? The mask of the personality that we put together. 
And so in the special relationship, the truth itself needs no defense. So being who you really are isn't defensible. It, it needs no defense. But you need, do need defense against your acceptance of the gift of, not to take death out and say failure or disappointment or disillusionment, right? And so if you are listening to this in 2019 and we're coming into these shifts and the truth of who you are needs to come out in any relationship in which you are involved, business, romantic, friendships, neighbors, doesn't matter. This is your opportunity if you would take this section in this chapter to try to apply that to your experiences so that when parts of your facade start to fall away, that you can accept, embrace, and love the truth of who you are from this context. That's my wish for everybody who doesn't just listen to our segments but listens to all of them and can take this to heart. That's what I wanted to add because it just occurred to me like, oh, this so fits that theme um, of authenticity versus the superficial mask that we wear. So as we come into a time where authenticity is necessary, this is very helpful information. Yeah, that, that, that is outstanding. Um, And, uh, you know, as you said, if you're defending, if you find yourself in defensive mode in any way, it must be that you're defending something that's not true. And so your defensiveness itself can clue you in that, oh, there's something here I need to take a look at. There's something here that I've made an idol of. There's something here that I'm afraid will be exposed. And yet only through its safe exposure can you grow past it. Um, And so authenticity works um, at two levels, just as we were talking about. Pure authenticity, and we could capitalize the A in that, is the truth of yourself in oneness, love, your Christ self, and bringing that through in as pure a form as possible. Here in level two, though, you do have a body, you do have a personality, and authenticity will be um, honoring that because that is, in the Holy Spirit's hands, that is perfectly suited to your special function, which the Course talks about, I think, in Chapter 25 of the text. You know, it basically says, you guys wanted specialness? Okay, you're all one, but here in the world of, of, of separation and bodies and, you know, separate beings, you have a special function that the Holy Spirit assigns to you that only you can do. Only you can reach the people you can reach. Only you have the personality to do that. And that is dependent on your authentic self here at this level too. So in a way, the more we recognize our Christ self, um, the oneness that God created as one, and bring that through, we are also so much better able to trust that what we, where we are guided and who we are guided to be with and how we are with them will reflect that and allow us to be our authentic self in the level of personality and physical body, even knowing those are parts of the dream. And that is a tremendous relief. There is so much energy that we expend and waste in trying to maintain defenses and false mm-hmm. images. That you know, when you finally allow those to to dissolve away, it, it's kind of like, oh, thank God. So 
yeah, that's that's really good. Um, Let me ask you a question, yeah. Dr. Bob. As a psychiatrist, can you give us some practical tips to help us when we find ourselves in defense mode? Uh, for instance, people who feel a need to explain um, when someone offers either a comment or a criticism. You know how you go into, like, defense mode and you're like, well, oh, yeah. you know, when you start sentences, well, well, the reason I did that was, how can yeah. how can we, when we catch ourselves doing that, how can we take a look at that honestly and try to pinpoint where it's coming from? Do you Is there a direction you can take? Um, yeah, absolutely. So most of our defensiveness, and I'm switching a little bit into psychological mode, although this is congruent with the course, and this is all very much something that I'm addressing in the book that I'm writing right now, which probably won't be out until... In February or March of 2020. Um, mm-hmm. But defensiveness is almost always going to be a cover of some kind for shame. And shame is the fundamental emotion of the ego. You know, um, the ego knows that it's less than, it knows it's inferior, it knows that it's not God, and that it can never be, the, I mean, really, that it's not the Son of God, and that it can never be the Son of God. And so it will do everything it can to distract us from that. It'll attack other egos, it'll puff itself up with pride, it'll get mm-hmm. drunk or high. Um, it'll, you know, get a million college degrees to prove how smart it is or accumulate millions and millions of dollars to prove how much better it is. But it all ultimately comes from shame. So when you find yourself in defensive mode, um, and this can be either as it's happening, which would be terrific, or after the fact. I mean, I'll often realize, ah, shoot, you know, when I was with that person, they triggered something in me and, you know, I kind of went defensive or – that's fine. Don't add further shame to your shame. When you have time and safety, just imagine that you're sitting with the Holy Spirit or Jesus, whichever is easier for you, and that they love you absolutely. And in the light of that love, what is it that you that you were experiencing something shameful about? Was it a behavior? Was it that you felt you were going to be seen by someone the wrong way, you know, really open up that, that closed defensive system and allow the light to come in um, in order to begin to shift it. Now, some people, it will shift instantly. It's like, oh, my God, I saw that. For most of us, that's not the case. We'll fall back into the behavior, but each time we do, um, we're more aware and we can sort of uh, – climb out of that hole a little bit faster, a little bit easier until eventually we see it coming. Now, if it's someone else who's doing that and, you know, I mean, who hasn't been any of us who are in a long-term relationship know that pattern of, you know, well, you made me feel this way. No, I didn't. Well, I was trying to do this and, you know, no, you weren't. I was trying. I mean, when you're in one of those, recognize you're both running on a hamster wheel And whoever Uh has the ability to be a little more sane at the moment, and if you're listening to this, that's probably you, needs to recognize, oh, we're both defending against shame. Now, that doesn't mean that you attack the other person and tell them that that they're just trying to avoid their shame because that attack becomes you trying to avoid your shame. Maybe what you do is you, in some way, shape, or form, put up your hands and go, you know, this isn't feeling good to me. I would rather feel happy with you. This goes down to one of the fundamental course lines 
um, that that I think is the um, the lotus stone for managing relationships than it is, do you prefer that you be right or happy? Because in every one of these situations, if you're explaining, if you're defending, you're choosing rightness over happiness. And the two are mutually exclusive. You can be right, but if you're right, the other person is wrong. And that means that relationship is a special relationship and you can never be happy. But in that moment where you realize, ah, here I am needing to be right, needing to explain myself and be heard and what is the matter with them that they're not hearing me, you can make the inner shift and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. If I'm trying to be right, then I'm giving up all hope of being happy. Um, And I'd rather be happy. And then you turn it over to the Holy Spirit internally. You know, Holy Spirit, you know, you take this. And maybe you back off. Maybe you say something like, you know, this isn't really getting us anywhere why don't we just back off and let, you know, I'm going to think about it and, and, and you can think about it or not. It might even lead to an apology. And I, it's funny, this has come up a number of times um, in the last week, probably because I was writing about it. Most of us hear the idea of saying I'm sorry or apologizing as an admission of shame and wrongness. We're in that right, wrong paradigm. And so to say, I'm sorry means oh, I was wrong and you were right. And, you know, and we're never going to do that because that's the basis of right and wrong. We're going to be right and make them wrong. We'll show them that. Um, Whereas when you shift to the I'd rather be happy paradigm, um, then an apology can just sort of be a signal to the end of hostilities. It's a signal that says, I I don't want to be in the right wrong thing anymore. And it's essentially saying, I am sorry, I am feeling sorrow that we had to get into that whole thing and I'd like to get out of it. So you're not apologizing from a place of I was wrong and you were right, I'm a schmuck and you are just the (laughs) wisest person in the world. No, no, no. An apology is really, I'm sorry we had to get into that. There's an, I, I know there's a better way for us to do this. And, and I'd love yeah. to have you as my partner in finding that way. Would you be willing to join me on that? And this is where I loop back to A Course in Miracles, because that's basically what Bill Thetford said to Helen Schuckman that, that gave birth to the course. He said, you know, what we're doing here is so toxic. I mean, these weren't his exact words. I'm paraphrasing. But, you know, it's so competitive. All of us in this department of psychology at Columbia University, you know, we're all trying to be right. We're all trying to defend ourselves. We're all trying to show who's smarter and who's got the better project and who wrote the best paper. You know, there has to be another way. And Helen said, I'll help you find it. So if you can revision each relationship you have Instead of coming from right and wrong, but from mutual, a mutual desire to be happy, and we all do want that. Um, by the way, this whole section, the two pictures, starts with God established his relationship with you to make you happy, and nothing mm. you do that does not share his purpose can be real. The per- you know, and then it goes on to say the function of relationships became forever to make happy. This is what goes on. So um, I realize I've given a really long explanation for what you asked. But yeah, yeah, when we find ourselves in defensive mode, oh, I'm defending something in myself that felt shameful. 
Or, yeah, the other person might be doing it too, but if they're doing it, it's pretty much a guarantee that you're both doing it. But if you shift your perception of who you both are and, and decide for happiness and, and, and joining in union, I, I deeply trust that you will say something different, you will behave in a different way, and you will be astounded at how fast the whole thing just seems to dissolve away and disappear. Mm. That was awesome. Don't worry about taking Thank time. Thank you. <clears throat> yeah, it was Three things. It. Thank you for asking. You asked the perfect question. Yeah. That was great. Okay, I'm glad I brought it up. Um, three things I want to touch on. Excellent circular reference back to the first paragraph of the two pictures. That was genius. <clears throat> the second thing is that relationships are mirrors. And... Oh yeah. Whether one person is doing it more than you, you, you cannot re, you cannot forget that what is happening is a reflection of both of you. So it behooves you if there is manipulation or defensiveness taking place. Where and I say manipulation because it's one person trying to convince you they did nothing wrong, or one person tr- trying to convince them that they should feel shameful, right? Yeah. Yeah. So <clears throat> as you step away from that agree to go and take a look at that. If you truly love each other, you'll do it. Take a look at that and see where that shame is. See if you can't pull a little forgiveness into the equation. See what it is you need to forgive in your past that's being reflected to you through this alliance, through this person. And create that shift by letting go of what's causing it. This effect is from the past. There is a cause. Find the cause. Forgive it and then allow transformation to take place in the moment that you're in now. Okay, so I wanted to say that. The caveat is this. You cannot judge or blame the other person if they don't have the same courage as you to do that. And so with respect to parts of our facade falling away, um, having to put the mask down, Again, whether it's an interview for a job or a relationship. If the other person can't or won't do that, then you have to forgive that as well. Because if they're not willing to let their mask down, if they're so afraid that they can't do it, then maybe the relationship can't continue. It can also be that if you emerge as your true self, no matter what that looks like. It, it's perfect and beautiful. But the other person wants you to sustain what was not true of, about you and wants you to pull, put the mask back on and you're not willing to do that, then this relationship is going to either have to shift or end. And so I wanted to throw that caveat in there because of the reality of it that when you do speak your truth, Sometimes the other person reacts in such a way that the relationship becomes unsustainable because you brought that truth in. And so that is life and that is growth and and that is painful, but it's it's the reality of it. And so I just wanted to touch on that so that we don't create some kind of um, lofty goal of doing this without experiencing some as a result of the behavior of both people. Does that make sense? Yeah. If you, and if you can't keep it on, it. 
it either has to shift or it has to end. Well, let me amplify even further. That isn't even mm-hmm. your choice. That's just what's going to happen. So if you make a true shift in perception and you are no longer using your relationship in a transactional way to patch up some aspect of your personality that you thought was defective and that they could cover for you on or, or to get something from them, you know, money, sex, acclaim, uh, you know, the love that you never had as a child, whatever it might be, if you make that shift, it is inevitable that either they start to shift with you or, as you were just saying, Char, if they can't, that, that the relationship is over. Um, it may continue on in form for a little while, but I, I was a couples therapist for over 20 years, and I wasn't teaching the course in my therapy, but it was certainly in my heart and in my head as I was working with people. And I mm-hmm. would see frequently this pattern where when you get to true forgiveness, you release the other person. And now they can either join you in true forgiveness, and, and, and this can play out in some remarkable ways. I mean, miracles that will knock your socks off. Oh, and they can also leave you in miraculous ways. So I have seen it where someone's struggling with a relationship and they, they forgive the other person, and, you know, within a couple of days, the other person comes to them and says, you know, this isn't working, isn't it? Why don't we split up? And where they anticipated a huge battle or terrible distress, now they're splitting up with a sense of peace and mutuality. That can happen. But if you give it to the Holy Spirit um, and you just keep holding the forgiveness and holding that, that recognition of what you want, the happiness over the rightness, no matter where they're going, you don't have to make the decision. Um, it, it'll just, you know, it's like a scab. It's going to fall off and it's going to heal. Um, and you'll see which way it starts to go. It will become evident. You know, maybe someone else comes into your life who's just like, oh, my God, I could be in, in relationship with this person. And I don't mean that in an egoic way, like, oh, I'm going to repeat it and seek again. It's like, oh, here's someone who's talking to me at a completely different level. Or, or perhaps, you know, your alcoholic partner suddenly says, you know, I went to AA today. I, I just, I don't like who I am anymore. And, wow, you're living in a whole different world all of a sudden. But we've got, this is a course in miracles. And a miracle is what happens when we make a shift in our mind that allows us to bring in more love, extend more love, which can only happen if we forgive. And when we do that, um, we are entitled to miracles, and it's essential we remember that. Um, you're not doing it with, okay, I need a miracle, so I'm going to you know, rub my magic wand and do that coursey thing. Um, but when you really embrace it at the level of forgiveness, uh, stuff changes. Um, I, there's really an does. example I'm going to give in my book. I can't share it here because I don't have permission yet. But of someone who did this and, and within 20 minutes got a phone call from estranged relatives who hated her and who she hadn't talked to in, in decades, suddenly calling out of the blue like, hey, how are you doing? Because when we really forgive, the past is gone. And that past isn't just your personal past. It extends to other people, too. And that's how you know that the course's version of reality is right and real 
because it, it overrides what we thought was impossible within this level of reality. It, it's shocking when it happens, um, and it does happen. You know, I, I, I've seen it, and not just once. Yes, um, it happened to uh, someone close to me where they didn't speak to uh, cousins. Uh, there was some big blow-up 40 years ago, right before her bridal shower or something. 40 years later, she called me, and, and so I talked to her about this, and I said, maybe they'll reject you. Maybe they won't, but you'll never know unless you make that phone call. So she took a deep breath, and she called them up. They heard her voice, and they started crying and oh. saying, help. Whatever happened, uh, they never talked about it. They just never spoke again. They get together. They're crying more. They're hugging. Why did we do this to us? We were so close. It turned out that it was another relative that started the conflict based on a lie, and it brought this whole big thing up, and now they're in their 70s, getting older, and lost 40 years. Lost 40 but when, years. But in that moment of forgiveness, in that it all moment melted of forgiveness, away. you got it, and, and that's mm-hmm. what counts. Time is for the purposes of learning, and it can take 40 years sometimes. But how much more tragic if one or the other had died without a chance to do that in this lifetime? You know, yes. I mean, you can still do it, but you, but it plays out in a different way. Well, yes. this was great. <laughs> speaking of which, speaking of people dying, <laughs> I have this weird thing where I get a nurse, call this person. You haven't spoken to them in years. And I was thinking of this person who, when I was around 15, 16, fully in the neighborhood, decided he took a, he took a liking to me and was, you know, making advances toward me, but I wasn't having it, so he felt it was uh, appropriate to grab me by the wrist and hold me up against the side of a a white cargo van. I was at the end of my street. Well, I started screaming, holy murder. He wouldn't let me go. Two of his friends were on top of the van giggling and watching the whole scene, and this man comes out of his house at the corner of the street. It was my uh, childhood playmate's friend's dad, his name was Randy, and he came out and he saved me. So for some reason lately, he's been on my mind, and I thought, why don't you give him a call and tell him what he did, because he probably doesn't remember, and thank him. And so this seemed very important to me. So I kept trying to commit to doing that. Well, I missed my chance. He passed away suddenly a few days ago, but I'm sure his soul knows, and I can probably get a message to him. But I really kick myself when I do that. I really wanted to thank him for that. That was great. Yeah. Yeah. So do it well, while you have the chance. Yeah, if the impulse you know? keeps coming up, you got to trust that. And yeah. I agree with you, Char. I'm sure he does know, and you were obviously, I mean, you know, you've got psychic stuff for sure, so you were picking up on, on his making his transition, and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and I'm sure the energy was going both directions. Yes. So I'm okay about it, but... I sure feel bad for the family. But my point is, ladies and gentlemen, whether it's if there's something you need to forgive or if you want to thank somebody for a kindness that they extended to you in your lifetime, do it. Do it. Get that get that love. Get get that feel it, experience it while while you're here and while you have the opportunity because when you don't, um, it's a little different, you know. 
So that's my encouragement. Okay. All right. Did you did you want to touch on I, uh, paragraph eleven and then pick up with paragraph twelve? No, I need 12? to wind up here. Okay. I have another All event right. in. Yeah. Oh, look at so the time. I, I think we're going to have to park it till uh, next time. Okay. Oh, no, it's a good I one. I would love to have the prayer, but um, okay. But I, 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 I think we'll jump in with paragraph eleven, and uh, you know, so this is this is pretty typical for us. We did seven, eight, nine, and ten. We did four paragraphs, and that seems to be about our pace. Um, you know, maybe maybe next time we'll we'll speed up and cover all six and finish the section. <laughs> yeah, that would be good. But I don't hear anybody complaining, Doctor Bob. So that's it's okay. Great. <laughs> Thanks, Char. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you again for all this. This was a terrific conversation. Um, the different um, directions it took, I think, were perfect for the time. And um, of course, I always look forward to the next time with you. So here's the prayer I chose. It is, again, from Choose Once Again, Selections from A Course in Miracles, published by the Foundation for Inner Peace. And this is on page 74. I found a good one. Here we go. Mm -hmm. Father, I give you all my thoughts today. I would have none of mine. In place of them, give me your own. I give you all my acts as well, that I may do your will instead of seeking gold, which cannot be obtained and wasting time in vain imaginings. Today, I come to you. I will step back and merely follow you. Be you the guide, and I the follower, who questions not the wisdom of the infinite, nor love whose tenderness I cannot comprehend, but which is yet your perfect gift to me. Amen. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. Until next time, God bless and be at peace.